Morning, Austin Stone. How we doing? Oh, man, it is good to see you guys. Uh, I've been hyped up as a, as a Seattle guy because it feels kind of exotic. Like I got flown in from at least two time zones away, which is kind of impressive, right? But I just got to kind of pop that balloon. I'm a, I'm a Texas kid. I hope that's okay. Uh, I, uh, I grew up. I grew up in the burbs of, of North Houston, uh, Woodlands High School. I don't know if we have any Woodlands people in the house. Me and you, all three of us. Hail to the Highlanders of the Woodlands High. That was, that was great. One over the whole crowd. That was wonderful. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to try to live up to uh, Matt's generous uh, introduction. Uh, love that man, but he set a high bar, so thank you for that, Matt, wherever you are on vacation. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, let me say this. Uh, the last few years of my life has been more than a little bit crazy. It has been eventful to say the very least. And when I say that my life is crazy and there's a little tinge of sarcasm and bitterness in there, you might think that that is because my family, it is growing at an alarming rate. Let me show you my, my family. We've got a picture here, I believe. There they are. That's my beautiful wife, Emily, on the left, who is, uh, who is here. Love you, baby. Uh, these are our, our currently three kiddos. Uh, this is the oldest, Boston. Uh, he is six years old, kind of tall like his dad. Okay. See what I'm doing here? Six. That's entirely too tall. Anyway. Um, so I'm holding our four-year-old Ryder, who is my little heart melter. And then this is uh, our two-year-old Banner. Uh, he's a lot of fun. He's a wild man. Our little wrecking ball of sunshine is what we call him. And then, uh, because why not, we're having our fourth kid in October. So um, thank you. Thank you. I don't know if you're familiar with Jim Gaffigan's bit about four kids, uh, but he says, if you want to know what it's like to have a fourth kid, just imagine you're drowning and then someone hands you a baby. So <laughs> we're looking forward to that. So uh, I really am excited. We're, it's, I'm, I'm happy, baby. I'm, I promise I'm happy about this. We can do this. We got this down. Uh, anyway, so that you might think that be, would be the reason for the craziness of my life, and that certainly has part of it. Uh, but here's what happened. About five years ago, my wife and I left our comfortable home in my comfortable hometown in the Burbs and moved to Seattle and moved in with my in-laws and moved to one of the most unchurched cities in the country to start a church in a place that's known for dark spiritual oppression and dove into all the rigors of startup. Uh, it, yeah, there's a lot going on. So uh, here, here's the thing. I say that it's entirely this place's fault on the bad days. Now, the bad days are few and far between as I stop the charade of bitterness, okay? Uh, most days are really, really good. And, and we've been having so much fun. And I did not expect to attach the word fun to planting a church, but that's what it's been. And we've seen incredible things as we've started this church community called Reach uh, on the east side of Seattle. It has been incredible. And we've seen strangers become family. And we've seen uh, the lost become found. And we've seen people far from God experience salvation in the name of Jesus. And we've baptized people. And people are getting from the stands and checking into the game for the first time in their Christian life, living life on purpose and living in a life of mission. It's been amazing. It's been absolutely amazing. And this place gets a lot of the credit for that. Uh, I have a 
strong attachment to the stone. Uh, I've never lived in Austin. I've never been on staff here, nothing like that. But just the people that lead and serve you guys are some of the most incredible people I know. Uh, It goes back pretty far, actually. Some of you might know Fabs Harford, your women's equipping director. She's amazing. Uh, She's a childhood friend of mine. We made our acting debut together in the fourth grade in a production of Oliver Twist, which, by the grace of God, happened before YouTube existed, so don't go looking for that. You're not going to find it. Um, Fabs was incredible in that. Uh, It was your founding pastor, Matt Carter, who uh, planned and executed a, a youth event in 1998, that I actually met Jesus at, so that's kind of a big deal. Appreciate him doing that. A couple years later, uh, I actually ended up working at the same church that Matt was working at at the time as a youth pastor in the same role that he had. That's kind of crazy. In that time, uh, Tyson Joe, who's the connections director here at the downtown campus, awesome guy, he was working in youth at that time, and we would dream together, what does a missional youth ministry look like? Jeff Mangum, one of your teaching pastors, used to come do Bible studies for us in the woodlands. The first time I ever heard the phrase missional community was in Michael Stewart. You might know him as Stu. He's kind of the mad scientist of the stone when it comes to missional community. He was in his living room, my wife and I, and that was the same day that your elders, Kevin Peck and Matt Carter, told me that I should start praying about planting a church, and my wife and I have never recovered from that day. So, uh, We've been blessed by Verge Conference and the story team, and so much of what this place stands for is only compelling and is only powerful on a scale that you don't even realize because you as the people are making an effort to live that out. So on behalf of my team in Seattle, Washington, and countless others you will never meet, thank you. Thank you for what you stand for. Thank you for your fierce commitment to the gospel. Thank you. Thank you so much. To all that to say, that is a wordy preacher's way to say I'm honored to be here. So thank you so much for having me. Let's start this way. I'm going to tell you two stories. You see if you can beat me to the punch and let me know what the connection is for the two. Number one, do we have any snowboarders or skiers in the place today? Any snowboarders or skiers? Eight of you, right. This is going great so far. Okay. Um, Anyway, uh, I was going snowboarding and skiing with my brother in high school one time. Uh, My brother's uh, used to live in Nevada, and so we went to meet him in Reno, and then we went and just kind of what we did, we went to all the resorts right around Lake Tahoe, this beautiful area, and it's right by Lake Tahoe. We kind of got some peekaboo views of Lake Tahoe going resort to resort, but hadn't really seen it, had seen it on a map, uh, knew it existed, believed in it, uh, didn't deny its existence for some strange reason, uh, but one day we went to one particular resort, I believe it's called Alpine Meadow, and we went there. We were one of the first ones on the mountain, took the first lift up, we're feeling bold, so we took the second lift up, I was feeling irrationally confident, like a teenager should, and took a quarter mile hike up to a higher peak that you can go to if you're feeling irrationally confident, and that's what I did. And so I huffed it and puffed it to the top of this little ridge all by myself. I'm, a, I'm from sea level. I'm a Houston kid. This was a terrible idea. The altitude is killing me. And I get to the top of the mountain and sit down, and I'm strapping in. I'm going to just fall down this mountain, you know, that I paid $50 to, to come up to, to the top of. And I finally lift my eyes, and I see Lake Tahoe for the first time. I have seen it on a map. I've seen glimpses of it, but I see Lake Tahoe, that extra elevation view looking down. I see the entirety of the lake, which is huge and perfectly blue, like sapphire blue. And there's just a beautiful pastel sky and there's snow-capped mountains all the way around and the majesty is unbelievable. 
truly unbelievable. I'd been near Lake Tahoe. I had seen glimpses of Lake Tahoe, but my friends, I had not seen Lake Tahoe the way I did in that moment. Overwhelming. Second story. Uh, let me just come out with this. It should be predictable, but I am a rabid Seahawks fan. I'm not going to get many allies here, but I love the Seahawks, okay? Uh, I can talk about the Seahawks as long as I don't dog on the Cowboys. It's going to be okay, all right? I want to go home with my wife to my family. I'm not going to say anything negative, okay? So I'm just, got it out there. I am a fan of the back-to-back Super Bowl champion. See, what? <laughs> what? Why are you? Why are you laughing? I assume we were on the one-yard line with the best running back in the Did that not? Okay, it didn't, it didn't go well. We, we threw the ball? Intercept, intercept, okay. All right, well, this is embarrassing. This is embarrassing. Well, uh, let's just cruise along with, with the story anyway. Uh, last season, uh, the first time we played our nemesis 49ers, Okay, the first time we played them, I had a friend in the Seahawks organization. He invited me to come to the game, which was incredible, and got some special privileges. We parked under the field, like under the stadium, avoided the crowd, got to watch the game in a box. I'm just geeking out the entire time. And then tragedy strikes. My friend, who gets to go to the games all the time, uh, he's like, well, we should probably leave early to beat the traffic. It's like, okay, yeah, sure. It was a terrible idea, but we start going back down to the car, and as we're working our way down to the lower levels of the stadium, we have to walk past the tunnel, like the tunnel that leads to the field. And so he's walking, and I'm following him, and I just kind of start falling behind, just like, right that, wow. And he sees me doing that, and he says, do you want to go out on the field for a few minutes? And like, all my cool chips are just cashed in at that moment. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, yes, absolutely. And so he takes me out of the tunnel, at the exact moment that the Seattle Seahawks fans at CenturyLink Field set the record for loudest outdoor sports stadium in the world. At that moment, it was in the fourth quarter, we were completing our humiliation of Colin Kaepernick and his fellow minions, and it was crazy, crazy loud, and I'm taking it all in. Now, the Seattle Stadium is pretty well known for its volume, right? Like, I believed in it. I had seen it on TV. I affirmed its volume and bragged on it with all kinds of inappropriate levels of pride, all right? But I never experienced it before. And the way that the sound, like, just swirls and reverberates in your chest, and there's these athletes. I'm 6'8", 240, and I'm in awe of these men. Like, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, These are the largest human beings I've ever seen in the loud, in the whole scene, like people unified for this common task of frazzling Colin Kaepernick, and we're really good at it. We're really good at it. All the unity of that moment and the power, it was crazy. It was crazy. I'd heard about that scene and the raw power of that moment, but man, experiencing it revealed it to be something else entirely. So what's the connection here? Where are we headed? I just shared two times where my prior understanding of something was revealed to be much smaller than its reality. Because of moments like these, my realization of certain things, uh, my understanding of them, my appreciation of them were greatly enlarged. What are your moments like that? I want you to think of one and, and hold it in your head. What are your moments where you realized and thought to yourself, wow, this is much bigger than I realized. Because I have a pretty crazy goal today. My hope, and it's a bold one, is that we might just share a moment like this together this morning about the thing that matters most, about that thing. 
We are people from different backgrounds. You don't know a ton about me. I know next to nothing about you, all right? Different backgrounds, different colors, different creeds, different situations, different struggles, different hardships, different circumstances. But I could, in theory, go person to person this morning and look each of you directly in the eye, say the following, and have it be completely true. Your Jesus is too small. Your Jesus is too small. Let that sink in for a second. It's provocative. Let it make you angry for a second. And think about it some more. We are all united in this problem, in this reality, that our Jesus is too small. And this is a huge deal, a huge deal, because the size of your Jesus determines the size of your gospel. The size of your good news is determined by the size of your Jesus. The size of your worship is determined by the size of your Jesus. The depth and the durability of your joy is determined by the size of your Jesus. And can I tell you that the size and the effectiveness of your mission is determined by the size of your Jesus. So there is a lot on the table. There's a lot at stake in this kind of conversation. And let me just say that whatever your current understanding of Jesus is, it pales in comparison to the reality of the bigness of his glory and power and love for you. Okay? This is good news. This is good news. So let's take a walk and let's see how God wants to make Jesus bigger to us this morning. I believe this is going to be a refreshing thing for us, even though it's a little warm in here. Can I get an amen? Okay. I've never used one of these. I'm loving it. I'm feeling it, okay? <laughs> loving it. So how do we go about making sure we have a big Jesus and a big gospel? Okay, how do we do that? Let's start with a simple framework of what the gospel is. For the sake of this time, let's say that the gospel in its simplicity is who Jesus is and what Jesus does. That's the gospel, so any progress we make on either of those two fronts, which, narrow, which you know, boil down to his identity and his activity, will naturally enlarge our gospel and our Jesus. So uh, let's work on this. I've worked as I've done my best to lay the foundation of a new church community in Seattle. I've done my best to lay a good foundation. I've asked God to help me with this effort, the simplicity of Man, help us have a big view of Jesus and the gospel, who he is and what he's done. Uh, we walk through books of the Bible at Reach the same way that you guys do here at the Stone. And we had the audacity to start our church with a two-year series in the book of Mark, which is hilarious because statistically your church plant is going to be completely imploded and non-existent by the time you hit chapter eight. So it was kind of bold of us. We made it through. Uh, God saw fit to grow our community. We're going through Acts the Acts of the Apostles now, maybe more accurately, in my opinion, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. But that's the book we're going through in this season. Uh, as I've been praying on these ideas of a big Jesus and a big gospel, we came to Acts chapter three at one point. Let me do the fast forward of what we covered there because it showed me a lot about the identity of Jesus and its bigness. In the book of Acts, here's the background. It's good for all of us to know. 
that Jesus has come and lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He's died the death that we deserved because of our sin on our behalf because he loves us. He's risen again from the grave, conquering death, conquering sin, promising that you too can raise to new life if your faith is in him. And then he ascends to heaven and sends the Holy Spirit to fill the lives of believers so that they can continue his work on the, on the earth through the power of the Spirit. That's how, where the Acts of the Apostles picks up. It's a pretty exciting backdrop. So here's what happens. They're trying to figure out, the disciples are, how do we live in response to this? This crazy, incredible good news. They start living intentionally with one another. They start loving their city recklessly. One day, Peter and John walk to the temple to be a part of the daily prayers. As they're walking into the temple, there is a beggar who has been lame since birth. He's never been able to walk. He asks Peter and John, for a handout, and instead, Peter and John say, we don't have any money, but how about this, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk, and he does, which is kind of a big deal. I've never seen such a thing before. Uh, That happened, and this formerly, you know, lame, unable to walk beggar is now dancing through the temple, and he's been lame since birth, so everyone in there has walked past him a couple hundred times, and they're like, is that Charlie, like, dancing through... Charlie is a very common Middle Eastern biblical name, for the record. Uh, is that Charlie? I think it is. And so that's what happens. And everyone naturally tells everyone, you got to come see what's going on with Charlie. And so a big crowd of about however many thousand people gathers, and they want to see what's going on, and they want an explanation. So Peter sees what's happening. He says, this seems like a pretty good time to preach the sermon. We got a crowd here. We got a compelling case for Jesus and dancing Charlie, we will call him, okay? Got a pretty compelling apologetic right here standing before them. So let's preach a sermon. Let's take this Holy Spirit for a test drive, essentially. It's right after after Pentecost. And he preaches a sermon that is incredibly beautiful. And he invites this crowd of people that is partially made up of those who literally yelled for Jesus' execution just about a month and a half prior and he preaches a sermon to the, to the leaders who orchestrated that murder. And he preaches a sermon to the people in Jerusalem who've only heard bits and pieces about Jesus, this healer, this prophet who's been killed. And he preaches a sermon to those fringe people who might be pilgrims who've been traveling for the last couple months to get to Jerusalem. But it's the same goal for every individual there that Peter has for them. He wants to make their Jesus bigger. He wants to make their understanding of who he is larger, and so he preaches a spectacular sermon, invites them into the knowledge of Jesus, invites them into repentance, but you know what he does is he just declares the identity of Jesus. Let me just fly through some of these things for you. It's incredible. The different unique aspects of Jesus's identity that Peter points out to his hearers. In verse 13 of chapter three in Acts, it's Jesus the servant, God's servant, who's come to serve those he came to save. In verse 14, it's Jesus the holy and righteous one, the only one who's holy and righteous, the one who's empowered to make us holy and righteous through his gospel. In verse 15, it's Jesus the author of life, not just the one who came up with the idea for human life, but the author of your life, holding the pen, writing your story for his glory and for your good. In verse 15, it goes on to refer to Jesus as the resurrected one who's conquered the grave. In verse 17, it refers to Jesus, the healer, who heals us of all pain and all disease, spiritual, physical, and otherwise. In verse 17, it also calls Jesus the Christ, which isn't just his last name. That's a title that means Messiah or rescuer, the promised rescuer of the Old Testament who's going to bring Break 
or fix everything that's broken in the world and heal everything that needs healing. In verse 22, it refers to Jesus the prophet who speaks on behalf of God. It refers to Jesus the refresher who brings times of refreshing to those who are weary. Verse 26 refers to Jesus the sent one who's been sent by God the Father, sent in the power of the Holy Spirit to send disciples to be ambassadors of hope and healing to the entire world. That's just Acts 3, verses 15 through 26. That's the identity of Jesus. Pretty big, right? Pretty big. He paints an enormous picture of Jesus, believing that the different aspects of his identity will resonate with different people. Beautiful. How's that go? What's the result of this robust declaration of the identity of Jesus? How do the people respond to the bigness of who Jesus is? Can I tell you this? Uh, About 5,000 people saved that day, according to Acts. 5,000 people. The church grows by a 60% clip in one day. Carter would take that. He would accept those stats on a given Easter Sunday, right? That's pretty awesome. That's what happens when you declare the identity of Jesus. So we walked through that as a church just a couple months ago and realized, man, the identity of our Jesus is bigger. Its scope is broader than anything we could have hoped, anything we could have prayed for. So obviously Jesus spoke clearly about his identity through those scriptures for us, our tiny little church playing up in Seattle. What about his activity? What about what he's done, what he's still doing? Is there anything on that front? Absolutely. Not long ago, uh, we were going through a reading plan as a church. I know that the stone does that as well, uh, which we love. We were going through a reading plan. It took us through Psalm 103. If you have a Bible, flip to Psalm 103 really quick. We'll put the verses on the screen as well. Psalm 103 says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits. And then the psalmist lists them for you, just in case you need to know. Who forgives all your iniquity, all your sin. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit, purchases you out of whatever slavery you're in. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. If you have a pen and a Bible, underline the verbs. It's crazy that just in these five verses in Psalm 103, look at all that Jesus does. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he satisfies. Bless him indeed, right? Look at this. Just this one glimpse of all that Jesus has done and continues to do, foretold in the Old Testament. Unbelievable. I've spent a lot of time thinking on this. The bigness of Jesus' identity, the bigness of his activity. Spent a lot of time as a church planter, as a a pastor. I I want the people God trusts me with to experience great joy and be walking with great boldness. So it's my job and my team's job and anyone who considers themselves a maker of disciples' job, to equip people to simply and effectively embrace this great gospel. And the way we've done that over the last few years, we've used a really simple framework that I want to share with you. There will be no deep exegesis getting into 
Greek this morning. There'll be no abstract theological concepts. I pray that the simplicity of a big gospel would be refreshing and encouraging to us this morning. We call this the 5S gospel, and I deeply repent and apologize for being the guest speaker using alliteration. It is a necessary evil. Five S's, all S words, I'm sorry, okay? But it's so darn sticky, and I pray that these words would be seared into your heart and to your mind to be reflected on often. So let me tell you this. First of all, the gospel is the good news that Jesus saves. He saves. Jesus saves. This is a beautiful, simple truth, okay? It's great for a bumper sticker. Remember we had those before Facebook walls to tell everybody what we believed in, right? Like, the Facebook wall is the modern-day bumper sticker. I totally believe that. Uh, It's a beautiful, simple truth that millions have been saved by a gospel this simple, that Jesus saves. Joel 2 in the Old Testament echoed in Romans 10, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from ourselves. Saved from exhaustion. Saved from striving. Saved from comparison. Saved from depression. Saved from addiction. Saved from whatever your situation might be. But the scriptures really boil it down to those are all just symptoms of the big problem. We are saved from sin through Jesus Christ. We're saved from sin. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, after going on for 15 chapters about various things of incredible importance, says, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel, of what's of first importance, that Christ died for our sins. That we can be forgiven of the sins we commit against others and commit against God. That we can be healed of the sins and the scars that are a result of other people's sins against us. He offers this double healing, this double forgiveness through the fact that he saves. He lived the perfect life on our behalf. He died the death we deserved on our behalf. He rose again to conquer death on our behalf. By this we have been saved from the penalty of death. Amen. Amen. This is the good news. This is the good news. But this is not the entirety of the good news. And in many ways, over the last ah, 30, 40 years, the church has done a great disservice by reducing the gospel to just this that just Jesus saves. And remember what I said. That when we shrink the gospel down, we are shrinking our Jesus, we are shrinking the level of our worship, we are shrinking the durability of our joy, and we're shrinking the size and the effectiveness of our mission. So do we believe this? Absolutely. But can I tell you some great news this morning? The gospel's bigger than that. The gospel's bigger than that. Because Jesus doesn't just save. Jesus also sustains. He sustains. He doesn't just save you. He keeps you saved. Because he's a loving father, and that's what loving dads do. Jesus is not the negligent father who sees you playing in the road, snatches you out of danger's way, puts you back in the front lawn, and then goes inside to watch SportsCenter. That is not who Jesus is. He keeps you close. He holds you. He has a loving grasp on you. His hold will never let go. He loves you. He sustains you in that way. Can I tell you something beautiful? And I've seen this simple, simple sentence cause shackles to fall off of people and them to experience more freedom than they thought possible. Listen to this. Jesus is more committed to you 
than you are to him. Some implications to a truth like that. His love, his steadfast love that Psalm 103 told us about is not contingent upon your performance or your behavior or what you produce. He just loves you unconditionally and he keeps you and he sustains you. Also, he provides sustenance. He gives you the very thing you need at the moment you need it for his glory and for your joy. He is the sustainer in that way. Perhaps that's what you need to hear today. How am I gonna make it? How am I gonna get by? How am I gonna provide for my family? How am I gonna endure this incredible season of loneliness, of hardship, of depression? He's the sustainer. How am I gonna step into the calling on my life? It's so big, it's crazy. How do I do this? He's gonna sustain you. He's the sustainer. J.I. Packer completely nails this. Listen to this. He says, have you been holding back from a risky, costly course to which you know in your heart God has called you? Hold back no longer. Your God is faithful to you and adequate for you. You will never need more than he can supply. And what he supplies both materially and spiritually will always be enough for the present. Jesus is the sustainer. He sustains. But it goes on. Jesus saves, he sustains, he also sanctifies. This is the churchiest word I'm gonna use this morning, I promise. Sanctification is the spirit-empowered process by which you are being made more and more like Jesus every day. Can I clarify something with you? It's the process by which you are made more like Jesus, not that you make yourself more like him. I have seen more exhausted church folk trying to chisel and form themselves into something they cannot achieve by themselves than I'd like to see. We can't muster up righteousness and perfection on our own. Are we supposed to attain a posture of being on board with sanctification? Absolutely. Justification, the fact that you can be saved, is all Jesus. That's all what he does. Sanctification, we can have a hand in that, but please understand who's holding the reins of that operation. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit's job to turn you into something you cannot be without his intervention. So stop trying to carry that on your own. That is a burden you were never meant to carry. He sanctifies. This is such good news. You will find that sanctification has much less to do with striving and much more to do with trusting than you ever would have expected. Trusting in who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's still doing. That is the heart of sanctification, my friends. And Jesus does sanctify. He is turning you into something you cannot be on your own. Might take some time, might be some bumps in the road. In fact, I guarantee there will be but he's going to complete that work he started in you. So surrender to the process, okay? Fourth, Jesus satisfies. Can I just declare the simplicity of that again? Jesus satisfies. He is ultimately satisfying. And I repeat this and I say it with a little more oomph when I talk about it these days because at the beginning of my full-time church vocational ministry, I didn't talk about it enough. I remember the day, I'm haunted to some degree by the memory of the time that my last youth event in the woodlands before I moved to Seattle, my last youth event, 
uh, I had a tradition on this particular mission trip where I would allow the senior high, like the senior boys that were about to graduate and go off to college, I would allow them to stay up as late as they wanted with me on the last night of camp, um, which was a fun tradition. We'd drink coffee and we'd laugh and um, it'd be wonderful. And I remember this one particular time that about five of us were staying up late and four of them dropped like flies eventually and I stayed up by the grace of God. Uh, And there was one left And then he kind of dropped the charade and stopped laughing as long as it was just, as soon as it was me and him. And I was like, buddy, what's going on? Fill me in. He said, Brian, I'm going to college in a few weeks. And I believe the gospel. I I understand everything that you've said about how this works and what Jesus has done for me and um, that he saved me and that he sustains me and I, I believe all of that. But I know what the college life is about to offer me and I'm just not sure that he's worth it. And it scares the out of me. And he said the expletive, and I was not offended, I was actually honored because it represented the level of angst that was in his heart about the situation. That was him being as real as he could be. And I got frantic. I got frantic backtracking for three years of Bible preaching, what I thought to be faithful Bible preaching. I believe it was, but it was clear the gospel I was preaching wasn't big enough. I can't shoulder the weight of all of that. The sovereign God is still chasing this guy. But we got, how is this not more prominent in our presentation of the gospel? There are people, especially people outside of the faith, some of you are sitting in the seats entertaining Jesus in this season for the first time or maybe this morning for the first time and you're like, okay, I'm tracking with you. Okay, I get the mechanics. I understand, you know, the exchange there. We, you know, on the cross and I get what you're saying the gospel is and it's simplicity, but is it worth it? Because it seems like this might cost me some stuff. And people get confused when we don't declare and demonstrate a life centered around A Jesus who satisfies. That life with Jesus is meant to be ultimately satisfying. You have been wired for a relationship with him. To know him and be known by him is the most satisfying thing in the universe. It just is. He satisfies so fully. Psalm 63, his steadfast love is better than life. Better than life itself Guys, when we choose sin, when we actively choose to indulge in sin rather than delighting in Christ, we are saying this is more satisfying than Jesus. And that statement's always false. Regardless of what immediate pleasure that moment offers us. And here's the scary thing about today's culture, about the culture you and I live in, is that you can go down the buffet line and bounce vice to vice, entertainment to entertainment for as long as you want. And it can take decades to get to the end and be like, wow, this is not very satisfying. That's, that's what our culture is all about right now. Can I recommend that you don't waste a couple decades? Can I recommend that you trust Jesus to be satisfying beyond anything you could dream or hope for yourself? That being known by him and knowing him and being a part of what he's doing in the world is the most satisfying thing that you can imagine. Jesus satisfies. One more, and it might take you by surprise. The last S is that Jesus sends. You didn't see that one coming, right? 
Jesus sends. Christian, you have been sent. You have been sent. Your life has purpose, divine purpose. Too often we we hold gospel in one hand and mission in the other as if they're different things. The fact that you've been invited into God's mission, that you've been written into God's story with a prominent and real role and real responsibilities and real opportunities to carry the mission forward, to have front row seats as humanity and creation is restored and made whole and given hope, that's your opportunity, that's your invitation. Shouldn't we call that part of the good news? Wouldn't you think so? I would say yes. I would say, yes, this is good news. The thing you fear partaking in, Christian, is one of the most joyful things you will ever experience. It's, what, it's why there's air in your lungs and a heart beating in your chest. And there is a joy in Christ and there is a knowledge of Christ that is reserved for those who walk with him on his mission, that are sent by him. And when you choose not to live sent, to live on purpose, to be a part of these S's going forth into the world and bringing hope and healing, when you opt out of that, you are leaving joy on the table. You need to go back and get your joy. You need to go back and get your joy. Guys, you get to share the story of your rescue. Even more so, you get to share the story of your rescuer. Shouldn't that be second nature? Isn't that what rescued people do? You get plucked out of the ocean, hypothermic, by the Coast Guard. Aren't you going to tell some people about that? Like that, might, that might work its way into conversation. Let me tell you what happened last Thursday, right? <laughs> let me tell you about how I was rescued, and let me tell you about my rescuer. Because you're going to want to know all about your rescuer. You're going to want to know all about him. And you're going to want to tell everyone about him. If you've been rescued, guys, it's a joyful thing. It's a joyful thing to be sent by Jesus. It's part of the gospel, not just our response to it. Okay? Charles Spurgeon addresses this so well. He says, I think you have not understood the Bible unless it makes you care about the salvation of others. If anyone reads the book aright, he becomes large-hearted. He cannot hold his own soul within the narrow bound of his ribs, but his great heart looks out to see where it can scatter the gospel's benefits. That's the heart of a rescued person. That's someone who gets to experience the joy of the fact that Jesus sends. So let this be before you. Let this be before you and understand that it is your job to declare that Jesus saves and demonstrate the joy of a saved person, to declare that Jesus sustains and demonstrate the confidence of a sustained person, to declare that Jesus sanctifies and demonstrate the life of someone who is struggling at times but constantly progressing towards Jesus, what Jesus wants them to be, to declare that Jesus satisfies and demonstrate the life of vibrance of a satisfied person to declare that Jesus sends and demonstrate the joy of being sent. That is your calling if your faith is in Jesus, who is clearly big in his activity and his identity. So I want to put up this simple definition of the gospel. I'm going to throw it up here for you. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves sustains, 
sanctifies, satisfies, and sends broken people like us. Broken people like you, broken people like me. That is our good news. So, heart time. Which of these truths do you need to receive today? Which of these truths have you never experienced the fullness of? If you're investigating Jesus for the first time, man, these are all on the table for you. That through repentance, that through turning away from reliance on self and choosing to rely on Jesus and admitting that you're a broken person in need of forgiveness and accepting his gift of grace, you can be saved today. And that walking from this place, you can know that he will sustain you. And that as you get overwhelmed thinking, how am I supposed to give up all these things in my life with the help of community and with the power of the Holy Spirit? He's going to sanctify you and turn you into something you've never been before. And in the midst of those sacrifices, which will cost you something, can I be real? It might cost you everything. Relationships, possessions, dreams, desires. He will satisfy you in the midst of that. And here's the thing. Right off the bat, he will send you. You don't need to go to seminary or a connect class or anything else. You can speak of your rescuer and share your rescue and be sent and experience the joy of living on purpose. And friends, if you are in Christ, been walking with Jesus for a while or for a long time or longer than you can remember, which of these truths do you need to remember? Which one is your circumstance attacking? Which of these have you started saying to God, hey, I've got it covered on that front? Hey, I can save myself. I'm pretty righteous. That's not going to go well. Hey, I can sustain myself. I don't need your help. I'll take it from here. How's that working out for you? I got the sanctification thing down. I'll turn myself into the person. Uh, That pride appears to be getting in the way of that process, ironically. Okay. My, My... My gut feeling is that a lot of you are on Jesus satisfies, right? Man, I believe the gospel stuff. I just want to walk in satisfaction. There are two common symptoms for people that are not experiencing true satisfaction in Christ. Almost all of them are not in community where they can be reminded of all that Jesus has done and all that he is. They're not in community and they're not living on mission. Because is there a more satisfying thing than walking in unity with other believers? Is there a more satisfying thing than these fleeting glimpses we get when we gather together and worship and lift our hands and lift our hearts? Is there a more satisfying thing than living on purpose together in the day-to-day stuff of life? And is there a more satisfying thing than seeing the God, the Holy Spirit, work through you and your friends to bring change to your family, to your neighborhood, to your city? If you're bored or if you're just not feeling satisfied, Check those two symptoms. Make sure you're in community. Make sure you're trying to live on mission. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus satisfies. I will tell you the way I wish I told that college-bound friend of mine. He's infinitely satisfying. So as you reflect, think about that. And just Some of us are called to receive. Some of us are called to remember. All of us are called to rest in this. Peter, when he's talking to that crowd I told you about in Acts chapter 3, equates the call to response with a call to repentance. It's this churchy word that we've put negative thoughts towards, like that's what bad people do. No, that's what Christians do to become more like Jesus. They live a life of repentance, okay? 
But there's supposed to be this repentance, which literally means turning from this and walking towards Jesus. And so we're supposed to stop walking towards self-reliance or relying on other people or trusting other things or other people or other activities other than trusting Jesus. And it says in Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Refreshment is available to you if you'll trust Jesus in new ways today. Refreshment is available to you. True rest. Resting in the fact that Jesus does these things. Because if you don't believe Jesus does these things, you probably think it's your job. And that's why you're so tired. Rest in the gospel today. Rest in the big Jesus today. Close with this, guys. You may not know this, but your founding pastor um, had, a, had an old church and an old man in mind when he started rolling out the vision of the Austin Stone. The church was Metropolitan Tabernacle, and the man was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It seems fitting for me to quote the first sermon that Spurgeon ever preached in that church. He said this, I fear Christ is too often but a shadow to us, rather a myth than a man, rather a person who was than uh, he who was and is and is to come, the Almighty I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform shall stand and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers, be the person of Jesus Christ. My friends, may Jesus always be the focus of this house. And may it always be the focus of your very lives together. And may your view of him always be growing bigger. Let's stand up and pray together. Just for uh, concentration and privacy, why don't you bow your heads with me as we pray to the Lord in response. Lord Jesus, God, I just pray in this moment that you would bless us with a realization of your bigness. God, some of us need to repent for holding you entirely too small. Some of us need to admit and confess that we have held you entirely too small, that you've been trying to enlarge our view of you and we have been resistant to that because often when we are called to enlarge our picture of you, it almost always involves us decreasing (laughs) the picture we have of ourselves. Remove that pride so we can see you for who you are in all your bigness and your identity and your activity. God, I pray that we would think of these five S words that you save, sustain, sanctify, satisfy, and send. And I pray that we would feel you pressing one or some of or all of these words, these truths on our hearts. God, I pray that people who have been investigating you or or seeking you or ignorant to your existence, that you would press these truths upon them, that they would put their faith in these truths, that they would trust in you, and that they become a Christian today through that trust and through that faith by that gift of grace as you reveal yourself to them. And God, there are plenty of us in different situations here that need refreshment, and that refreshment and that rest and that encouragement only comes in trusting you when you declare to us who you are and what you still do in the hearts of those you love. So 
Empower us with your spirit. Help us trust you more. And as we move into this opportunity to worship you some more, I pray that we will be responding to these incredibly huge, enormous truths that prove that we are loved beyond anything we ever could have hoped for. Jesus, we love you, we need you, and we can't live without you. It's in your name we pray, amen.